So we're going to take a trip to Calvary through the eyes of Luke. You may ask, well, why? Why do we need to take this trip? It's not hard to explain. It's all about Jesus. And I want us to see him in his humanity that will allow us to even get a little closer to him. You know, we, we tend to see Jesus as God, because he is. But while he was here on this earth, he was in his humanity. And we need to see that and understand what he knew that he was going to go through. So I'm not going to take you like I usually do verse by verse completely through the next four or five chapters. We're going to start in Luke 18, and I'm going to pick some of the stories through each chapter, and we're going to take this trip to the cross, to Calvary, and inevitably to the resurrection. You can go to the next slide. This is the greatest season of them all, where we remember and celebrate and learn about the price the gift that Jesus paid for you and me. The world calls it Easter, and that's fine. But we call it Resurrection Sunday because that's truly what we're celebrating is Resurrection Sunday. And that's what over the next four weeks we're going to be really focusing in on is that great Resurrection Day. Luke is a little different than the other Gospels in that he is the only non-Jewish writer in all the New Testament. He was a Gentile. And maybe someone say, well, what is a Gentile? A Gentile is a, non, a person that's non-Jewish, basically. It's just a Gentile is, is someone who is non-Jewish. That's it's what it means. It, it's almost like you read it, you don't understand. Is that like a different class of people? Is that it? No, it's one who, who do not, who are not Jewish in descent. We know that Luke was a physician because in Colossians 4:14 Paul called him Luke the beloved physician. In both the gospels that he wrote in Luke and Acts Luke says that he is writing to the most excellent Theopolis and I believe was really a very dear friend. Let me show you this in Luke 1 verse 3. It seemed good to me also hearing having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theopolis. I think it's just beautiful. And, and Luke is saying, I, I want to get this, I want to write it to you in something that you can understand, because he's been with Jesus, he's been watching these things transpire, and he wants, and he's been like a first-hand witness interviewing the disciples who were actually on that road to Calvary, because Luke wasn't there, but he, he, was, he took all these interviews and he wanted to put together a real account of what was happening and send it to Theophilus. He did it again in Acts 1.1. He says, the former account I made, which is referring to Luke, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Theophilus, the name means friend or lover of God. He probably was a Roman citizen because he refers to him as most excellent, which is how most people would, would show respect to a Roman citizen. Some say because the meaning Theopolis uh, is a pseudonym for the church, friend or lover of God. And that's fine if that's what you choose to believe, because that's what the name means. But I personally think that he was a beloved friend and probably a wealthy man that sent Luke through, Bible, or through medical school. Because back in those days, the history of that day, families who could afford it had personal family physicians. And I believe that's who he was to Luke. And I just want you to have a little bit of history. We're going to finish the story in Luke 18.35, where Jesus and the twelve are on their way to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover which from this point was probably about eight to ten days away. This was Jesus' final Passover feast. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. In fact, I want to show you where he tried to tell them. 
I want you to look at Luke 18.31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things that had been written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. He will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, insulted, and spit upon. It's interesting that he's writing in the third person here, but he's talking about himself. He says, they will scourge him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. But this is so interesting. Verse 34 says, but they understood none of the things that he was saying. None of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which he had spoken. How could that possibly happen? It's not like Jesus was talking in tongues. He was talking their language. He was talking to them. And if you really look at the heart of Jesus, he needed something. He needed his men to be beside him, to hold him. But the Holy Spirit knew better. The Holy Spirit knew that these men could not handle it. There's no way they could have handled what was being, what was being said to them. Well, are you saying that Jesus made a mistake? No, I'm saying that he's in his humanity and he needed his men, the ones that were so close to him. He needed them to hold him and to support him. But you got to know that it wouldn't have happened. What I want you to see is that he, was, he knew what he was heading into. He knew what he was going to have to endure in just a short week. But yet he was still teaching us and still healing the sick, all while he was carrying the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. It's unbelievable. So why would God do that? Well, simply because they couldn't handle it. They just couldn't handle it. You guys saw last week I had a little cardio thing going on and I sat out for prayer time. Oh, Bob was up here right after, I need to pray for you. We can't let nothing happen to you. We have nothing. If I were to tell you I'm going to behead into Sonora and oh, by the way, when I get there, they're going to arrest me and possibly kill me, y'all wouldn't let me go. You would hog tie me and do whatever you had to do to keep me from going. And that's exactly what would have happened if these men had understood. They, there's no way. They loved him. And there's no way. They'd, they'd have done whatever sinful thing they had to do to keep him from going to Jerusalem. They would have stopped him. And the Holy Spirit knew that that was true and had to stop them from understanding. And this really began to move me when I started to see Jesus in his humanity. You realize how alone he was? Knowing what was coming. Knowing what... And, and yet, you know, the Bible tells us that he did it for us. He could see well into the future and know who he was doing it for, for all of humanity. And even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Father, if you could, you could let this cup pass me by. But if not, if not, I'll do whatever it is you've called me to do. I want you to see this parable where Jesus was teaching just prior to these things that he had just said. And I want you to understand a parable. You might ask, well, what is a parable? If you looked in your Strong's Dictionary, which is a, a dictionary that gives you, breaks down all the Greek words and actually Hebrews words. 3.3850, the word parable, it means close beside. Or balo, which is the second half of the word, to cast. A parable is a teaching aid to cast alongside of the truth being taught. Can you kind of get a, a vision of that? It's something I'm going to tell you a story, and I want to, to just cast it alongside of what you know and understand so that you can understand what he's talking about. That's what a parable is. Now back in, we're still in Luke 18, but verse 9, he spoke this parable. He also spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. I'm going to stop there for a second. You got to understand who he's talking to here. He's not talking about people in the world. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the church. 
There are people in the church and there are people in church today that think they're better than the people that are outside the church. And we have to be very careful as a church. So that's who he was talking to. They thought they were righteous and they despised others. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Well, for some of you younger ones, you might not know what a Pharisee is. A Pharisee was the religious sect of that day. They were the religious leaders. They were very pious and very religious. Believing in the law, the law of God. Not fulfilling a bit of it, but they thought they were. The Pharisee stood and prayed with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Or even this tax collector. He's referring to the guy standing next to him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all that I possess. Yeah, he's a pretty holy guy. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus went on to say, I tell you, verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is so absolutely incredible. God is not looking for the good things you do. It's never been about you being good. That's what, salvation is not about you being good. It's simply about you realizing that you're a sinner and that you are, can be saved by the grace that Jesus Christ is that grace. We start being better and living better because of this grace. Can anybody give me an amen? amen. We just do. When you fully commit yourself to Christ, things just begin to change naturally. Just naturally. I was smoking and drinking and carrying on when I fell in love with Jesus. And I didn't quit it all right away. It took some time. It, it, took, it was a process that I had to change, that God had to change in me. And, and he didn't slap me around and say, you're just a sinner. You've got to get better before you get to church. It's amazing what people think. We start being better and living better because of grace. He has made us better men and women. People often think that it's the other way around. That we have to be good to be pleasing God, to be pleasing to God. That doesn't cut it. It's never been about you. It's always been about what Jesus did for you. It's about what he's doing for you on this road to Calvary. And that's what I hope to see. Because he's, I'm telling you, he's changing me. So let's read the story that I was really based this on. Luke 18, 35. I'm just going to try to read through this without expounding upon it, and then we're going to take it apart after I get through it. Verse 35, Then it happened, as he was coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who went before him warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out even all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and he followed him, Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So I've entitled this section of the message, I Need a Miracle. I need a miracle. How many of you need a miracle? 
There's a, there's a lot of us. Roxana, put your hand up. I need a miracle. We need miracles. Jericho is one of the three major cities in Israel. You have Caesarea, Capernaum, and Jericho. These three cities were the major trade route and were where most of the population lived in Jesus' time. Jesus and the twelve were headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jericho is about 15 miles east of Jerusalem, and it's actually a lower elevation than Jerusalem. That's why they always say we're going up to Jerusalem. It's about 800 feet below sea level. There's no Y in the Hebrew language, and it was actually called Yericho, which meant fragrant place. And it was called that because there were so many natural flowers and wild roses that grew there, giving the place a sweet fragrance. Plus, it had many natural freshwater springs, making it the perfect place to build a city. Jericho is also called four times in the Bible the city of palms because of the date palms that grew there naturally. You can see why so many civilizations were attracted to Jericho. It actually is one of the oldest continually occupied cities in the world, is Jericho. And this is where this was taking place. In 1994, the Israel government gave control of Jericho over to the Palestinian government in a peace for land deal. It's still that way today. And today there's about 20,000 Palestinians that live there. This is where our story is located. This ancient city is where Jesus and the 12 were passing through, heading to Jerusalem for the last time. And he encounters this blind man. I think it's kind of interesting that Luke doesn't give us the blind man's name, but the book of Mark does. It repeats the very same story. Mark 10, 46, Mark says the blind man's name was Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. He sat by the road, highly traveled commercial route to beg for his existence. I've always told you guys that it's interesting what names mean. Bar, in this case, means son of, and Timaeus it means a son of honor or of humility. It could mean either one. So I'm sure that he was a son of honor to his father, but there's no doubt that he's living a life of humility. He lived a life of humility begging for his needs. We don't know how long he became blind or even if he was born blind. The Bible clearly doesn't tell us or if he had some kind of accident that caused his blindness. All we know is that everyone who passed by knows that he is blind. What a life of humility that he lived. So blind Bartimaeus is alongside a highly traveled road, and he hears all the commotion of the people coming, and he begins to ask, what's going on? You realize once a person does go blind, the other sensory things really kick in. You know, if he can't see, he's, he's, that's what panics me over my granddaughter so much. Because if you can't see, you certainly can hear everything that's going on. I and mean, if you can't see in here, that gets to be pretty scary. But he could hear everything that was going on. And possibly as people were walking by, dust was raising and he could smell the dust. He could, he could hear voices were being talked about. What's going on? What's going on? What, who's coming? Why is everyone so loud? In this moment, Jesus was very popular. He's headed... He's, he's, he's headed for the cross, but he's, he's still healing people. It, just prior, he healed the ten leopards. He's raised people from the dead. He got a large crowd following. Everybody seems to love him. And it's hard to believe that just in a week or so, that people are going to turn against him and, and crucify him. It's hard to even get our heads around it. But Luke 18.38, he cried out loud saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I think this is very important. It's a clue. The Bible shows us how he calls out to, G to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, tells us that Bartimaeus, he could have been like everyone else and said, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what they told him. Who's coming? Jesus of Nazareth. Well, who's Jesus of Nazareth? All that tells us is Jesus' his name and that he grew up in Nazareth. That just means he's... He's a prophet. He's a holy man. But he doesn't say that. 
He says, Jesus, son of David. That's a messianic name for Christ. He had to have somehow been raised up in the church or in the, in the synagogue to hear the Old Testament prophets saying that Christ would come through the lineage of David. That's the only way he could have known. The Bible doesn't tell us how he knew that. All we see is this humble man that's down on the ground begging for his very existence. But he knew to call him Jesus, son of David. Not Jesus of Nazareth. It's just like saying that, you know, he's just like, he's just like a good prophet. Like, it could be like Buddha or Muhammad. Those guys didn't heal anybody. But no, he doesn't. He says, Jesus, son of David. So I think that's a real clue. I want to show you five things that we get from this story that we need to know when we are asking for a miracle that we need in our lives today. Number one, he cries out what he believes. Jesus, son of David, you're asking for a miracle, a divine intervention from God, right? A miracle is not something that we can explain. We need to know who we're asking. Jesus of Nazareth is, would be like calling him Confucius or Muhammad. We need to call him who he is, Jesus, son of God. He's not just a historical figure, and somehow Bartimaeus knows. He cries out, Jesus, son of David. Number two, it says, have mercy on me. He appeals to the mercy of God. Do you know that God has compassion on us? God is a compassionate God. Psalms 86.15 says, but you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Psalms 118.29 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Luke 18.39, Then those who went before him warned him that he should be quiet. But he called out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. They were shouting him down to be quiet. They were basically telling him to shut up. I know we're not supposed to say that. There's no kids here today. But that's what they were doing. These people were doubters. They didn't think that God would heal him, nor did they care. They said, be quiet. It's, it's, you're being rude. Shut up. We don't want to hear it. Jesus doesn't want to be bothered by you. Or maybe it's not God's will to heal you. You ever heard that? You may need to be blind for some reason. Or because of their lack of faith, people begin to make excuses as to why God hasn't healed you. I don't know about you, but I'm guilty of that. Because of my lack of faith. Point number three, he dismisses all the voices of doubt. This is very important. Don't allow the voices of doubt to affect your faith. You know what you stand on. You know the promises of God. If you've been in this church, you've been hearing them. You've been studying them. And you know something about Bartimaeus that he didn't know. He couldn't have known because it hadn't happened yet. The real miracle is the miracle of salvation. The miracle of a new heart. There's nothing more real, and I'm telling you, there's no greater miracle than that. He didn't know anything about salvation. He didn't even know Jesus was headed for the cross. Verse 40, Jesus stood and he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had came near, he asked, what do you want me to do for you? I think that's such a gracious thing. Jesus wanted to hear it from his own words, his own mouth. Do you think Jesus knew he was blind? Yeah, he did. We know that he is God and he knows what this man needs. Besides, he had to have somebody lead him up there. I don't know if his eyes are closed. I don't know if he was wearing sunglasses. I don't know. But Jesus knew that he was blind. And he still says, Tim, what do you want? 
What do you need? I want to hear it from you. He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. This brings us to point number four. He exercised his faith and he came near. How many of us have possibly missed out simply because we're too afraid to come near? Well, I'm not going to go up there and ask the church to pray for me because what if God doesn't heal me? Too afraid. What if God doesn't? You know, I, don't, I don't have the faith. I know who I am. I know that my faith is lacking. And no, I'm not going to go up there in front of the church and allow him to put hands on me and pray for me because I, I, I'm not sure that I believe. And yet we're sitting here in this church practicing our faith, worshiping God. But how many of us have potentially missed God's touch or God's hand simply because we were afraid to come near? We were just afraid to come close. I'm telling you, it's a lie from the pit of hell when you think it's because of your doubts. You don't think I have doubts? Believe me, it freaks me out to have precious people that I love so much in this church that need a touch from God. And I want to see him healed. But you know, if I uh, say too much, if I make such a big deal out of it that I'm praying for Roxana and believing that her ears are going to be cleared and she won't be dizzy anymore and won't get sick anymore every time the cloud comes, I can't believe you're here. Bless your heart. but it's still there. What do you do with that, pastor? Do you realize there's a lot of churches, a lot of pastors that refuse to call people up and lay their hands upon them because they're afraid that they just might not get healed. And then, then, then the pastor sends her with egg on his face. No, he doesn't. But that's how we feel. That's the flesh. Mark 9.24 you guys remember this? Immediately, the father of the child cried out, and he said, in tears, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. You guys remember that story of Mark? The disciples couldn't cast this demon out of this young man. He couldn't. The guy's kids throwing himself in the fire and throwing himself in water. It just it was horrible. And I could just see Jesus standing there. You know, he's probably peeling an apple going, what's wrong with the kid? How long has he been doing this? Do you want him to be healed? The guy says, yeah, that's, that's really one. Do you believe that he can be healed? And the guy said, yes, I believe. Lord, I believe. And then a second later, he cries out, help me with my unbelief. So don't think you're the lonely goose. I struggle with it. I pray over my own wife. And she has said to me, and I love her dearly. I'm sorry, sweetie. But she has said to me, I've never heard of anybody being healed of sugar diabetes. What? You think God can't? Well, no, it's not that I think that he can't. I've just never heard of it. See, that's how, we're, that's how we're structured. She loves God and serves God with all her heart. But that's how we've been taught. Well, God just doesn't, you know, diabetes is it's just, it's something I have to live with. No, it's not. It's not. You know, I don't know why God keeps giving me these hard messages. Because I struggle too. So I don't lay my hands on her and claim and cry out for healing because I'm, I'm a little bit afraid. What if God doesn't? I don't want her to be disappointed. Oh, where am I? Luke 18. Jesus said to him, 1842, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Isn't that interesting? He could have said, by the power vested in me, the holy God, I command you to see. He didn't. He didn't even lay a hand on the man. 
He could have said, go and sin no more. But he didn't. He just said, your faith has made you well. Why did he say that? Because he showed up. When you feel that thing inside, you know, at the end of the service, I stand here and I say, if anybody needs prayer, please come and let me lay hands on you and pray and I'll have Joe here with me every Sunday. Every Sunday. And every once in a while, I guarantee you, there's a nudge inside of one of you that God is saying, go get prayed for. And you go, no, I, I don't want anybody that, no, I'm fine. No, you know, I just don't think I'm going to go up there. And maybe it's not even for you. It might be for your mother, your father, your child. No, I, I just don't really, I don't, you know, I'm okay. But Bartimaeus stood up and he allowed these men to take him to him. So we have, what's the next slide? I'm lost in my message here. He cries out what he believes. Jesus, son of David. You know, I think we ought to practice crying out once in a while. We're all so quiet. We're so stoic. We're in a Baptist church. Sometimes I think we just need to cry out. He appeals to the mercy of God. God, have mercy on me. He dismisses the voices of doubt. I've had voices of doubt in this church. Human voices that speak to me. I'm not going to point anybody out. But I've had voices of doubt that'll say, well... Maybe it's just not God's will. It actually makes me angry. What? You're telling me that we're supposed to be sick for a specific reason? God is not a cruel God. He can heal. And I tell you, sometimes he don't and we don't understand. And I, I get it and I'm with it. God, I, I'll admit that I just simply don't understand. But I'm not going to accept the fact that he wants my granddaughter to be blind and deaf at the same time at 22 years old. I'm not, I'm just not going to accept it. I'm sorry. I'm not. And I'll keep crying out until, until I die. I'm not going to give up. Dismiss all the voices of doubt. So many times I believe it's our own fear that'll say, well, there's a reason. And we talked about that this morning, Kaya. And, and yeah, some things God has showed you, things have happened where he's taken what you have and been able to use it for his grace and glory. And praise God for that. But I don't call that out for the rest of your life. I call healing. And I'm going to stop being afraid to call out what I see. I'm going to dismiss the voices of doubt. I'm going to exercise my faith and just begin to shout it out and show up. Then verse number five is he gave glory to God. He gave God all the glory. Luke 18, 43 says, and immediately... He received his sight and he followed him, glorifying God. And all the people then, they saw it and they praised God. Everybody started praising God and believing. I believe Jesus is walking by us right now. That's how strong my faith is. At least I call my faith. I can't call it out for you because I don't care what the doubters want to say anymore. I don't care. Am I afraid they're just going to call me a damn fool, that guy out there in that Baptist church in Tuolumne crying out healing? Well, then call me a damn fool. I don't care. God is the same God he is today as he was yesterday and the day before that. He's the same God that healed blind Bartimaeus that can heal Kaya. Kaya, Kaya. can't even think of her name right now. Kaya. That can heal Roxana. That can heal sugar diabetes. He can do it. Matthew 
18.20 says, where there are two or three gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. Do you think that he's not here? If you don't realize that God is here in our midst, then you're completely confused. Little Danny boy, he lives inside of you. He's in there. He's in there. And you can talk to him just like he's there, just like you talk to your dad. You can talk to the Father God in heaven because he's right here. You don't have to shout. He's right there. He's right there in you. You can talk to him. Jesus hasn't changed. We make excuses why he hasn't healed us. We tend to at times put more faith in our medical institutions and community than we do in the God who created us. And believe me, I thank God for the medical women that we have in this church right now. Believe me, I praise God for you, that you're here, that you have the training that you have, because you'll protect me if I go down. But we need to start putting our faith in God to heal us. You're not alone. Preachers like me are afraid to speak and to claim healing because what if it doesn't happen? What if he doesn't heal? Well, that would be embarrassing. It'd be embarrassing for me. When did it come, become about me? When? So I was struggling with this this last week. And I've got more scripture, but I don't have it on the PowerPoint because I'd already done it. And I said, Lord, what about that scripture in James where you say you have not because you asked not? You can't tell me I haven't been asking. He says, oh, you're so smart. Go read it. All right. If you have a Bible with you, open it up to James chapter 4, verse 6. If not, just listen closely. Now, what you have to understand is who James is talking to. Okay? That's really the, the point of this. He's talking to the church that had been developed back in the day, the church of Jesus Christ. He's talking to the church. He's not talking to sinners. He's talking to the church. He starts off by saying, where do you get wars and fights that come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? That confused me too, Bob. I read that and I said, what? And the Lord started dealing with me. He says, now listen, I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to your church. I'm now talking to you, George. I'm talking to you. Well, when's the last time I've been in a war? When's the last time somebody in church has made you angry? When's the last time that somebody's offended you? It's all about us here. He's talking to us. And I said, well, Lord, it's been a long time, but do they not come from your own desires for pleasure that war in your members? Well, it could be something as silly as somebody sitting in my seat. And I get angry that they're sitting in my seat. Everybody knows Bob sits right there in that seat, and they're sitting in Bob's seat. And Bob takes a grudge. They know that I don't want anybody sitting behind me. That's why Bob sits there. He doesn't want anybody to sit behind him. He likes that spot. Now somebody else comes along and sits in that seat, and Bob could get a grudge against this person. And naturally, you know, they don't know, but you get a grudge. And all of a sudden, that person, you know, carries in a donut into the sanctuary. You get mad at him because he's bringing a donut in here. Who do you think you are? Coming and sitting in my seat, bringing a donut into my sanctuary. Who do you? That's where wars come from. Because of your own pleasure. We got to see that he's writing to us. I know that's a, a foolish analogy, but it's real. We get angry at people that we love, that are part of the body of Christ. Verse 2, he says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. And I was quoting just the last part of that. I said, you do not have. Well, Lord, what about what I don't have because I don't ask? I've been asking. And so he said, 
You lust and you do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. When's the last time that I ever murder anybody, Lord? You want to go back and read about how Jesus described murder. If you're even angry at someone. It's the same as killing them. If you were just angry at someone because you don't like them, because they cut you off in the road, and you're angry. You murder, you war. In that midst, I never ask for anything. I'm mad. Verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Understand, he's talking to me. And I hope that he's talking to you now. Because I had to deal with this earlier in the week. All right, Lord. How do I ask amiss? How, 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 how do, what, are you, what, are you, what are you saying to me? What, how do I ask amiss? I need to know what that means. Verse 4 says, adulterers and adulteresses. Oh, Lord, no. You're not talking about me now. Do you not know that friendship with the world is an enemy with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All right, God. All right, God, now you're starting to make me mad. You're picking on me now. What are you, what are you talking about? How am I asking amiss? As a pastor, you, you want to see the church grow, and it is. I mean, look at y'all here on a snowy day. It is growing. New believers coming. But imagine how it would grow if God healed Roxana's ears and she started telling people. And that if God touched Kaya's body and completely healed her body from all that it's going through, from her heart to the rest of her body. Boy, wouldn't that be great? The church would automatically begin to grow. Who am I thinking of? All of a sudden it's become about me again. So, Roxana, when you, God heals your ears, don't tell anybody. <laughs> when God touches your diabetes and you don't have it anymore, you're not having to take insulin, so don't tell anybody because it's not about me. But I'm confessing to you that I've had these thoughts. God, if you were to do this, what a great place this place would fill up. We'd probably be doing two services on a Sunday because of these people you have touched in our midst. Father, isn't that good? And he said, oh, yeah, it would look real good for you, wouldn't it? When does, has it become about you, George? That's when I read Adulterers and Adulteresses. Oh, Father. I try not to have friendship with the world. But even my wife will tell me I'm watching something that's not appropriate on TV. I usually will listen to her, turn it off. I told her, I said, hey, uh, maybe Rick's going to come stay with us a few nights if you know he has no power up the hill. And she goes, well, you got to have to watch what's on your TV, aren't you? <laughs> I said, oh, quit it. I don't, this is not that bad. I finished The Walking Dead. I won't go back. It's not, it's not that bad. Verse 5, it says, Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I said, Oh, Lord, forgive me. Allow me to be humble. I never want it to become about me. And I'll confess, because I'm not a, uh, 
a seminary student. I usually say a cemetery student. I don't have a degree. Um, and for so many years of the ministry that I've been in, from being out at the motocross track to planning a church to being here today, I've always sought to, to get acknowledgement from my old pastor. To seek his approval. And God has said to me numbers of times, what do you need his approval for? I'm the one that's given it to you, what you got, and I'm the one that's put you in a place that you're at. Whose approval are you seeking? But see, my flesh wants to be acknowledged that I'm as good as the rest of the pastors on the hill, even though I don't have a cemetery degree, seminary degree, sorry. But it's the truth. It's in me. And it's, it's been breaking me down this week that, God, I don't want this in me. I want to believe totally in you. I don't care what man thinks. So what am I saying with all this scripture? What I'm saying, I'm asking God to forgive me. To forgive my unbelief. Being afraid to claim healing. Because what would people say about me if, if God didn't do it? And the Lord spoke back and says, when has it become about you? Or believe in God for a miracle who all see it and then would start to say, oh, what a holy man of God that is up there in Tuolumne. No, I don't want that either. But the flesh does. Can I be honest? The flesh does. People say, wow, wow, there's some incredible healings going on up there in Tuam. You'd think this place wouldn't fill up just to come see? Absolutely it would. What, to line my pockets? If we had 150 people and I started doing two services a day, oh yeah, that's for a raise, trust me. But so is it about me? No, it's not about me. And I don't want it to ever be about me. I want to be able to call out healing as I see it and trust God for the answer. It's up to him. He's going to do what he wants to do. My part is to believe by faith and to teach you all to show up when it's time. There was an old hymn wrote about this very scripture in Luke by a lady named Fanny Crosby. I don't know if any of you ever heard of her. She wrote it somewhere around 1832, so I don't expect you've heard about her, but maybe if you're a musician, Joe knew exactly who I was talking about. In the year 1867, she wrote this. She said, I met Dr. William H. Drone, publisher of her song at an interview, and he said, I must pay you for the hymn, Pass Me Not. That, that hymn that you sent me. And I was so more than glad to receive it, he said. He put into my hand, Fanny's writing, what was supposed to be a $2 bill. And he bid me good night. It struck me that I ought to ask him how much he had given me. Because you see, Fanny's blind. She's blind. She didn't know what he gave her. And there might be a mistake about it. So Fanny asked him to come back. She showed him the bill which he had provided. And it proved to be a $20 bill, not a $2 bill. He actually thought he was giving her a $2 bill. Remember, it's 1837 or 1867. She said, I declined to take the amount, but he said the Lord had sent me him, this hymn to him, and therefore that meant that I should pay you $20 for it. 
which was a lot of money in that day. The hymn went, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art smiling, do not pass me by. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. Fanny never regained her sight, but she believed and she lived humbly. And I think what God has been telling me is to stop being afraid to pray for the sick. Call it like you see it and believe. That's all I've asked you to do is believe. Let me do the rest of the work. I do not believe my granddaughter is to go through life blind and deaf. I do not, and I'm not going to accept it. So I'm asking God to be merciful upon me and my prayer for her and for my prayer for Kaya. And we should not be afraid to shout it out. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's not that hard. It's not that difficult. And I was afraid to preach this message because of my own insecurities of who I am or who I am not. Maybe who I want the world to think that I am. Oh, he must have been taught in some great Baptist theological seminary. He must have been. No. By the seat of my pants in the school of hard knocks. But I'm going to stop being afraid and stop being ashamed of that and start believing that God is going to do some great and miraculous things in this place. Amen. And we have to stop being afraid to pray for the sick. So with that being said, who's going to allow me to pray for them today? Thank you. Thank you. Let me take this back up top and you guys come up and we're going to pray.